Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts 15. Acts 15, we're going to read the first 33 verses this morning. We've got a little lengthy reading, but I want us to get the whole story. Now, if, you're, if you surveyed the bulletin, you probably saw the word government in the title, and that probably elicited a whole lot of feelings, none of them very good, if I could just make a guess. But let me state something very clearly. Every organization, the Rotary Club, the Garden Club, the Boy Scouts, the Beta Club, the Booster Club, any or every organization has some set of organizing principles. They have some form of government. And when they proper, they, they're, they're properly functioning, it preserves the peace and purity of that organization. You don't even notice it working. And that's the point. But when it doesn't work, when you lose power and water, when you've got potholes big enough to bury somebody in, when government's not working the way it should, it becomes the bane of your existence. Am I right? Okay. Uh, by the way, there's a pothole on Bill Strong Road you could bury somebody in. Okay. Now, do you think government within the church is something God has an interest in? Or do you think He allowed us to just figure it out? Let's think of our definition of a church for a moment. A church is the people of God organized by the Word of God participating in the covenant of God. It's organized by the Word of God. God has laid out in Scripture clear principles for what church government looks like. We call this divine right government. We're God's people. Don't you think He has a right to tell us how we should, what form and function government should take? I think so. And so I want us to kind of pick up that thought in our sermon in a sentence. Government is God's gift to the church. Government is God's gift to the church. Let's pray and then we're going to read Acts 15. Heavenly Father, we live in one of the most politicized ages in history. And it is easy for uh, us to associate all the bad things of government that we see today with the gift that you've given us. But I pray, Father, that you would, as Romans 12 says, that we would not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. May your word and spirit transform us this day, that we may see things clearly through the lens of Scripture. Help us, Father. Let this not be just a big book, but let it be to us living and active, sharper than two-edged swords, 
Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read to verse 33. Hear the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by, my mouth of the gent- that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, Listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those proclaim him, For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, 
although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you all the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burdens than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. And thus ends the reading of God's word this morning. It's a little lengthy passage. But I want us to get the whole story. If we're going to ask how the gift of, of how government is a gift of God to us, I want us to first see how is the gift of government at work then? How is it a gift in the early church? Well, for starters, we can say the church has a complication. They have a complication, an issue that needs to be resolved. Now, what is the issue? A certain group of people were teaching that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, you can imagine for obvious reasons why this would be no small kermuffle for the Gentiles. Paul would address this issue in the letter of Galatians. He would say that if you accept circumcision, you've got to accept the entirety of the law. He would say that if you accept circumcision, it's another gospel and that you're worthy of divine cursing and anathema. Because we have to ask the question. We asked it when we read through Galatians. Are we saved by Jesus Christ alone or Jesus and something else? Do we keep just circumcision or the ceremonial law? Now we have to get, yesterday morning I had eggs and bacon for breakfast. This question would affect what I ate for breakfast. Could I eat bacon? It would affect how I worshipped. It would affect how I laid my head down at night. It would affect the totality of my life. That's a problem. That's a complication. How do they resolve the complication? Well, we see it in our passage. They seek clarification. The church seeks clarification. Now, how do they seek clarification? They do it in the most Presbyterian way. Let me give you a definition. Presbyterian government is a representative government. Presbyterian government is a representative government. You notice, I'm a recovering Baptist. Anytime there was a decision to be made, the entirety of the church had to get together to make a decision. But that's not what we see in our passage. They don't get a caravan and go in gross to Jerusalem. 
They appoint representatives, and these representatives go to Jerusalem. And that's what we do in our churches. MJ is a representative. We have a session. We have a presbytery. We have a general assembly. All places where representatives go and represent the body. Where they go to preserve peace and purity. Now as the elders are debating this issue, they debate it as equals. And they debate it in what's called a church court. Now Dr. Waters makes this comment in a give me book I've got on the back table if you want to read more. He says, we commonly call these places, we commonly call what we see in Acts 15 a church court. Why do we call it a court? Courts don't make laws. Courts enforce laws. They don't go to Jerusalem and create a brand new idea. Instead, they trust the word that Jesus Christ had already given. When Cornelius was saved and Peter recounts the story, Peter reflects on John the Baptist's words. He reflects on Scripture. Paul had a divine word from Jesus Christ to go to the Gentiles. James, in their debate, he references the Old Testament. These representatives are not doing anything new. They're declaring what Jesus had already spoken. They use Jesus Christ's words for clarification, a biblical response to the complication. And when these elders make, these representatives make a decision, it is binding on the entirety of the church. It's binding. It says they come in one accord and then they distributed it to the churches. Now, what was the church's response to this clarification? It was celebration. Luke says they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is amazing. In the beginning of Acts 15, they wanted to choke each other. By the end of Acts 15, they want to praise God together. Doesn't that illustrate how important the purity of the gospel is? If our lives are based upon the gospel, it's important that we all have the same message. There can be no peace in the pew if there's no purity in the pulpit. We can say that God's gift of government led to the praising by God's people. You can go home and say, I heard in church this morning that government made people sing. Well, that's a miracle. Now the question becomes, what are the implications of this for us? Is what happened in Acts binding for what happens at Bethesda? Well, we see in the book of Acts a similar circumstance, a similar problem, 
in a binding resolution. We can say that what we see in Acts is binding and authoritative for how we do government in the church. So how is that gift then a gift for us now? Let me give you just a few things. One, Presbyterian government is a representative government. That's a gift. And it's a, not, it's a gift that should not shock us. Paul in Romans 5 says, Adam sinned and death came to all of us. Now how did that death get to all of us? Paul will make the case that Adam was a representative. We know how that works. We've been watching the news when it says that Putin went to war against Russia. Have you seen Putin fire a gun? I haven't. But he made a decision as a representative and it affected the entire country. Paul will say the same thing of Jesus Christ. He was born of a woman, born under the law, born to bear the curse of the law as a representative. Adam and Jesus are the two most important people in Scripture. We could say that our redemption is by representation. That's why Paul will say things like, I've been crucified with Christ. You know, I've read the Bible once or twice. I've never seen Paul up there with Jesus, have you? He says, I've been baptized with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I didn't see him in the tomb with Jesus. But he says, Jesus is my representative. Our redemption is by representation. If that's true for our salvation, how much more true is it for how the church operates? And guess what we see throughout all of Scripture? Moses. God appoints 70 elders, 70 representatives. Philippians 1. To the overseers, to the elders and deacons. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, he writes and discusses elders. 1 Peter 5, fellow elders. These are representatives of God's people who preserve and protect the gospel for God's people. For me personally, that should be an amen. You say, why is that? Have you ever been in a situation where there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians? Or a personal problem I have in my house when there's too many cooks in the kitchen? What's that like? Well, if Jessica was here, she'd tell you, frustrating. Get out of this kitchen. Why? There has to be a proper balance to get things done. There's got to be balance to get things done. It's frustrating, exhausting, bloated, congested when there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Presbyterian government allows for a right balance that we could properly function well. This is why we need godly representatives. This is, but what do these representatives do? Well, that brings me to my second point. 
Presbyterian governments is an empowering government. It's an empowering government. What do I mean by this? Let's look at the army. The army has generals and the army has field officers. What they do is they provide order and equipment. They remove obstacles. They provide opportunities so that the soldiers can function well. To use a modern example, we've seen complaints from soldiers in Russia that the Generals are not giving them ammunition or clear direction. How's that working out for them? Not very well. What we see is officers, representatives, don't do the work for the people. They empower the people to work alongside of them. I'd love to say, I'd love to just share the reminder That it's not the pastor's job to propagate the gospel. How do I know that? You know how many of of me there are? One. You know how much one man can do? Not a whole lot. But God has given us a government that empowers us so the gospel can be propagated by all of us. And we look around... And we see all these parachurch ministries. Grief Share, Alcoholics Anonymous, Gateway Mission House. These are great things. They're needed things. But I very much agree with Robert Louis Dabney. He says this, Had Christians acted on Christ's plan for the church, there would be no need for these organizations. Because the church itself would have been found the best and most sufficient place for those in need. It is a crying evidence of the church's misunderstanding and neglect of her divine plan that outside agencies should have to be patched together by human invention to do the church's proper work. What's he saying? All these organizations exist outside of the church because we are not being properly empowered as a church to do these things. What we see is Paul and Silas and Paul and Judas and Barnabas, these representatives go back to their churches and they strengthen and encourage them for Christian service. And so I ask us, How can we be strengthened and empowered for Christian service? Uh, Look at us. Do we even have enough in this room to be a baseball team this morning? I'm not. How many people on a baseball team? I'm not sure. But we're playing baseball. We're not playing golf. We're playing baseball. And each one of us in this room has a different gift. God is, it is not by happenstance that God is, Form this church and organize it in this particular way. Each of us have gifts. The question is, how can we use them to propagate the gospel? Presbyterianism is not made to be an enabler. 
Enabling us to sit in the pew, it is to be an empowerer. Empowering us to use our gifts together to further the work of Christ's kingdom. Lastly, I want to end with this. Presbyterian government is an expansive government. In our passage, the smallest church had equal representation with the most mighty apostle. We're a small church, aren't we? And yet, we have equal representation. We work hand in hand with churches across the world. Not only do we think of churches in our presbytery where we labor beside big churches like the First Presbyterian Church or little churches like Learned. We labor together. But we also labor with organizations within our denomination. You know, we have things within our denomination like Reformed University Fellowship, a college campus ministry. There's 188 of them across the world. 20,000 students are hearing about Jesus every week. We're part of Missions of the World, where we have 580, 562 missionaries scattered across the country. 65 are in restricted areas. We serve alongside uh, Mission to North America. They were the first on the scene when the tornadoes hit Silver City and Amory and other places. Clearing up debris, building sheds for people so they could store the belongings they salvaged. They plant one church a week across this country every week. Helping our Presbytery plant two, one in Florence and one in Ridgeland. We do not labor alone. I want to be very clear. We are not an island to ourselves. We are Presbyterian. Now, let me, in closing, let me be very frank. I'm a recovering Baptist. I love my Methodist brethren. I see them two or three times a week in Raymond. These other churches are not heretical churches. Our own book of church order says, This doctrine of presbytery is necessary to the perfection of the order of the church, but it is not essential to its existence. The question is not right or wrong. The question is better and best. Does that make sense? We have the best. And if we are to be faithful to the scriptures, we must run Christ's church in Christ's way that we may be effective in Christ's work. That way, church government will not be the bane of our existence. We will not have any proverbial potholes that we get sunk in along the journey through the Christian life together. God has given us this gift that we may be encouraged, that we may be strengthened, that we may be equipped, that we may be empowered, that we may be effective. It's a gift. Now, can I pray? Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your scriptures. 
I thank you for the guidance they give us. I thank you for the direction laden within them. I do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use this gift. Yes, I think of the church around the world, but I think most keenly on this one. Father, I pray that you would equip us for greater service. That you we would be strengthened to use the tools that you have provided for us. That though we may be small, that you would use this church to do great things. Father, as you have led, I think of, of old Princeton. Two young boys praying beside a haystack led to one of the greatest missionary movements in church history. Father, what will you do with us here? Father, we look with open eyes and expectation. Lord, use us in a mighty way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a hymn. We're going to sing for 642, Be Thou My Vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else.